Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Consider an objection you have probably heard from unbelievers not a few times. There was no flood as described in the Bible because modern geology proves there was no flood. In short, a scientific understanding of the physical world has become so widespread and accepted as the highest sacrosanct cultural authority that in the minds of many skeptics, science has the power to disprove God's existence and discredit the accounts he has given us of his actions in the world. If there is one thing I often see repeated by skeptics is this idea that the biblical flood in Genesis is just a myth. The more outspoken skeptics will unashamedly mock the idea of the flood and of Noah's Ark. Here is a condensed summary of what the Bible says of the flood. Selected verses come from Genesis chapters 6 and 7. Quote, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. So they went into the ark, and the Lord closed it behind them, and the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. End quote. In Orthodox Christian theology, the Ark is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Yahweh who closed up the Ark for Noah, his family, and all the creatures who came to Noah two by two. The Ark going about on the surface of the water is a hint of the one who would himself walk upon the water, the one in whom we are saved and spared from God's judgment. Jesus himself affirms the flood. In the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, quote, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. The Lord Jesus affirms the flood and relates his second return directly to the days of Noah.
The Apostle Peter, however, tells us that people will continue to mock the idea of both the flood and of Jesus' return. Quote, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. End quote. Second Peter chapter three verses three through six. This episode of Good Heavens begins a series on the discussion of the Genesis Flood from a scientific perspective. One of our most popular Good Heavens episodes asked the question, how do we know the Flood happened? Wayne and I affirmed it happened from a biblical perspective, because Jesus affirms it. Everything in the heavens and on earth, we believe, point to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. The Flood is no exception. So on the next few episodes, we are going to examine more of the scientific evidence for the flood from a young earth creation perspective and from an old earth creation perspective, as well as examine some of the flood legends from around the world. Our guest on this opening episode of our series on the flood is Dr. Timothy Clary, a PhD geologist with the Institute for Creation Research here in Dallas, Texas. Tim's research and fieldwork have specialized in discovering and mining industrial, oil, and natural gas fields. He has been on staff at ICR since 2013. Here is Dr. Tim Clary. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'm actually been at ICR about eight years now, just over eight years. And uh, before that, I had a couple of other careers I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but I joined him in, in 2013. And so I've been their geologist, essentially, kind of took over for Dr. John Morris. We overlapped a couple of years, and he mentored me a little bit. And, and then uh, we still touch bases occasionally on some of, the, some of my ideas. But uh, it's, it's been interesting. But my career began as an oil and gas geologist uh, with Chevron. I ended up getting a, a master's from the University of Wyoming, went right into Chevron, worked with them for about eight and a half years, bounced around the country. Unfortunately, it was the late 80s and early 90s. And so oil prices crashed, and they ended up laying us all off. But it worked out for the good because I never would have gone back and got my Ph.D. if it wasn't for that. So because of that, I went back to my home state of Michigan, went to Western Michigan University. They had just started a Ph.D. program. I had one month to get into school. I got laid off in the middle of July. And they, they accepted me, took me in, in in August. And so if I hadn't gone there for my undergraduate, I probably would never have gotten in there that quickly. And, but they, wow. were, they remembered me, and they said, we'll take you. And they even gave me money and assistantships and things. And so about three and a half years later, I had my Ph.D., and then I taught at a small college in kind of northern Michigan for about 17 years full-time and learned to really kind of bring things down to the freshman level. Uh, so hopefully in my writings here at ICR and in my books that I don't get too over people's, you know, too high of a level all the time. Sometimes it's hard to avoid some of the terminology, but uh, that's really helped. And I, I see God's hand really kind of guiding my career, even though there were things I, turns I took where I shouldn't have, he brought me back. And he was I kind of wow. felt like I was Jonah at times where I was getting into things <laughs> that I shouldn't have got into. And then he pulled me out of there, yanked me out basically by the collar and said, I have a use for you. And so here I was, age 52 years old, came to ICR in 2013, and 
been having the time of my life doing research, the best research I've ever done in my life. You know, I've published That's papers fantastic. and journals and things, and but this is like the greatest research because it shows that God's word is true, that there really was a global flood. That's awesome. It's so good to hear, Tim. Can you briefly, how did you get interested? Was your interest in geology uh, childhood, or was this more of something that you, 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 you gleaned as you got older, or how did you get interested in rock? Well, my brothers and I used to hoe beans growing up in uh, northern Michigan, kind of you know, halfway up the Lower Peninsula. And for people from Detroit, it's northern Michigan. But it's about two hours out of Detroit. We used to do a lot of bean hoeing. Now they just spray them with chemicals. Uh, we used to pick up fossils that were pushed down by the glaciers. And so we'd find these little rounded rocks that had brachiopods in them. And the big prize was always trying to find a trilobite. And so occasionally we'd find one of those, and it was a big deal. So we, we used to kind of compete picking up rocks. So we had rock collections. And, and I was interested in science, but I never took a geology class in high school because that wasn't the you know, prescribed college prep type courses. We took biology, two years of that, year of chemistry, year of physics. And then I never really thought about geology as a career until I took a geology class and talked to the professor there. And then I took another one, and I said, this is really cool because it combines a lot of the sciences. You know, it combines physics and chemistry and you know, history. And it really looks at the history of what happened. You can use the rocks almost as the pages of the history book. Of course, we don't believe the Earth is that old, as, as most of the evolutionary scientists do. Uh, but it's still the, the order is still there, and so you can still kind of work out the order of deposition, uh, which I believe most most of the sediments were deposited by the flood. But uh, really, kind of began in childhood then. But I, if it wasn't for taking a geology class in college, I probably would have become a physicist. Ah. I like physics a lot, but uh, I think physics okay. is almost too exact for me now. Yeah, I need, I need a little more leeway. <laughs> physicists yeah. are too like, well. Got to have, yeah. have an answer, and in geology, yeah, uh, I always have an answer. Yeah, Tim, uh, Tim uh, Dan and I have talked a lot about uh, astronomy and cosmology stuff on our program. And, uh, you know, to delve into geology is a little bit of a, a switching gears for us. But we, uh, we've often observed that uh, in cosmology, it's not nearly as exact as people like to think. Uh, but your uh, physics is supposed to be more quantitative, certainly. Right. Now, Tim, let's just jump right in because I know we have a lot of people listening that will uh, no doubt <laughs> give me grief <laughs> for uh, entertaining the ideas of a young earth creationist. I have uh, atheist friends. I have uh, a friend in church specifically who is an old earth creationist. Uh, and so and so I have the objections from my atheist friends and objections from my old earth Christian friends. Um, who pepper me with questions like, Ray, what are you, some kind of young earth creationist? There's this kind of antagonism that I want to dispel. And, uh, you know, you, you're obviously knowledgeable and trained at the Ph.D. level doing top-notch research in the field of geology. Tim, how in the world can you be a young earth creationist when you're working in such a field that is dominated by the idea of millions of years old? Could you explain this to us? Well, the rocks really don't tell you how old they are. That's, that's the thing you got to remember. Unfortunately, uh, back in the 19th century, a lot of geologists that were beginning really the science of geology, there really wasn't much of a science of geology till probably the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, so they were kind of formulating science as a whole, but they were putting together geology and looking at rocks across mostly Europe, England, Great Britain, that area. And they were kind of looking at the things and the fossils they were finding in them, and they were 
started to say, well, there's so many rocks here, the earth must be millions of years old. And they were just throwing out that number without really any scientific basis for that number. But they wanted to purposefully push the stories, you know, of the Bible out. They wanted to take Moses out of science, as they kind of were somewhat quoted as saying. So they wanted to, there was a purposeful effort by some of these guys uh, in the beginnings of geology to kind of introduce this deep time. And, and James Hutton was really the guy, really the, the founder of deep time in the about 1790s. He saw a big rock outcrop in Scotland, and he said, these rocks must have taken millions of years to form for this rock to be uplifted, tilted, eroded, and another rock later to deposit on top. And so they already started putting in this great time concept, this deep time concept. And to me, it's kind of amazing they jumped not from tens of thousands of years and not from hundreds of thousands of years. They jumped right to millions. Hmm. And the more mm-hmm. I think about millions, I think about, okay, nobody can fathom a million. Nobody can imagine a million years or more. And they made this quantum jump from, you know, why wouldn't they have said this must have taken hundreds of thousands of years? Uh, but they started going into millions of years. And then, of course, and then they wrote their geology books up, assuming there was a great amount of time. You know, the biblical genealogies must be obviously wrong. And so they started saying the rocks are showing this, the rocks are showing this. But the rocks really don't show age. We just have to think outside the paradigm of things happening slow and deposition like we see today happening slow. And that's, that's the problem where all geologists are trained that everything happens slow. You know, deposition over here took a million years, this took a million years. But to kind of finish my point, the, the millions of years thing, it's, it's, it's almost like monopoly money. It's, it's beyond conception. Mm. You can't imagine a million. You can imagine 10,000 years. You can imagine maybe 100,000 years. But when you jump one more order of magnitude, you just you're lost. You can't, you know, no human can really fathom a million years. At least I can't. And I, I've talked to a lot of people, and they can't either. And you know right. that it's that million, it's that millions of years to me that, that, that kind of bothers me. They throw that number out there like it's real. Yeah, that's that's precisely Tim. And speaking personally from someone who's who's a lay trained. I love reading about evolution and biology and geology. I love the sciences. But but the one thing that I see repeated in evolutionary narratives is what you just say, that, that they give us, like I'm thinking of the biologist, secularist, atheist, Jerry Coyne, who, um, who had – we had, had read his book for a book club, uh, an atheist Christian book club uh, last year. And um, one thing that, that always strikes me in any book on evolution that you read – is this idea that uh, that we can conceive of billions of years? And in fact, I'll tell you in a couple of paragraphs what happened 150 million years ago. And you get this narrative. It's very quick. It's very brief. But it's generally always vague and ambiguous when it comes down to the details. They tell you this happened 500 million years ago, then 400 million years ago, then 300 million years ago. You're getting this sort of schematic detail as though it happened over the course of a weekend or something and so you get a you get a vague sort of narrative that's thrown into this black box i think you mentioned this in your book this this idea you just did now this idea that 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 time we just we just throw everything into this giant blender of massive amounts of time and somehow it comes out in the wash um and and so we bury the specifics in 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 ambiguity and in deep time and it's. It, I always say that you know, how can you? People that criticize the Bible, right? They they have this problem that the Gospels were written decades after the events they record. So so the skeptic, the, the scripture skeptic, will say they have a problem with decades. But then turn around 
and swallow the camel of billions of years where there is no real recorded history uh, to the extent that they are trying to detail. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you. I think that that problem of deep time seems to be, I guess, for lack of a better word, a magic box. You just throw something into a million years, hundreds of millions of years, and it happens. Um, would you, you said that there's no way to tell the age of the rocks and i can hear my friends going well wait a minute there's all kinds of dating methods that have been proven to be scientifically sound but you outline in your book the 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 level of variation that occurs with the various accepted dating methods could you go into a little bit of the secular dating methods and how and break those down a little bit for people to understand them well in the by the end of the 19th century they discovered radioactivity henry Becquerel, i think it was around 1896 and then so in the early 20th century, they started studying radioactive elements. And then uh, I think around the 1930s in that range, they had a mass spectrometer going, so they were able to do some measurements and actually measure different isotopes and things. And, and so what they've come up with is a method where they assume a lot of things, that, uh, and it make, kind of makes it work. and makes the rocks come up to be billions of years old or millions of years old uh, using the decay of naturally occurring radioactive elements. And so that you you can use those as a clock, and but there's there's a there's a lot of levels of assumptions built into that. And, and you mentioned the word proves. Uh, none of these are proven. You know, they like to argue they're proven, but there's no way to verify any of them. There's no way to go back in time and say, okay, did this really happen? And a case in point is, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago, but now it's 66. And so you know, what's a million years between friends? Uh, you know, they change the numbers all the time. They're always kind yeah. of tweaking the numbers, but they're always in that same range. You know, if you find a number, and in many cases you'll find they do studies, and ICR has done these as well. We've sent samples off, you know, double-blind samples off, and you find some really weird things. Numbers are coming in all over the board, and they have to kind of weed through those and say, well, this data point must have been contaminated because it's 200 million years too young, and this one's 200 million years too old, and then they kind of find the majority of them kind of come in this range. But again, all those dates are non-verifiable or unverifiable, uh, and you really can't uh, go back and prove any of them. And when they have tried to do that, I point out in my book, back in the 60s and things, they've gone through and tested volcanic eruptions that they know from history, when these eruptions occurred, or they know from archaeological discoveries with coins and things, they they know when the reign of this particular emperor was. They know how all these lavas were. And almost every time, I don't think maybe only once where they happen to get one right, almost by blind luck, I think, but almost every case they're wrong. And so every case that we know the age of and we test them, they're way off. I mean, they're hundreds of thousands or millions of years off in most cases. Uh, yeah, Tim, I'd like to add a little bit on radioactive decay. Oh, sure. So, uh, so there's critical assumptions in radioactive decay that can't really be known for sure. So one of the stumbling points is the, you have to know something about the initial concentrations of the different radioactive isotopes. So you, if you don't, and there's, if you know, geologists uh, and scientists intend to make certain assumptions about, uh, you know, if there were no, none of the daughter products initially, then you could say that all the, the daughter product that, you find would be from the reactive decay, but you don't really know that. So if it started with some of the 
daughter element, like uranium decays into lead. If it started with some of the lead, then that would make it seem uh, older than it really is. So, the, uh, and there's a tendency for things to uh, come into the system, into the rock or out of the rock, um, that would throw off these concentrations, and that would interfere with a, a good date. And uh, there's, I think, evidence about um, maybe the radioactive decay rate is different. Though there are certain elements, at least, that we know from physics that there are situations or certain conditions that can actually change the decay rates, uh, at least for certain uh, certain elements. Um, what do you think about the uh, uh, rate research project that ICR did, Tim? You were you came along to ICR after that project, but I'm just kind of curious what you think of that project. Well, I, I thought it was it's pretty comprehensive. I mean, they, they put a lot of money and effort into it, and they did a lot of testing that would never have been done probably any other way. They, what they really showed, in my opinion, is they showed that the, the variability within one rock with several methods, you know, one of the arguments that secular scientists try to say all the time is, Oh, you get the same number no matter what method you use. That's totally untrue. That's what the rate project showed. If you do one method of the same rock, you get one age. Another method gives you another age, completely different. Again, sometimes orders of magnitudes off from each other. Uh, to me, that's one of the more compelling things that shows you that really these are just shooting in the dark. These ages uh, really don't yeah. make as much, much uh, you know, verifiable sense uh, as they're thought to be, yet they're always reported as facts. And you, Wayne, you mentioned the thing about right. the, the, you know in and out of the system. And the thing that bothers me, I studied hydrogeology as part of my PhD program with groundwater flow. And there's groundwater everywhere. There's groundwater flowing through these rocks. When you blow the water table, there's groundwater constantly in contact with these rocks, and it's moving. So you're always bringing new minerals in, new minerals out, you know, as ions, carrying things in and out of the system constantly. And even the isochron method, they try to plot up and get a nice straight line. That we found out uh, with my, my former colleague here, Vernon Cups, who's a nuclear physicist. Uh, while he was at ICR, he looked at those, and he, he shows that there's a, basically a mixing curve. And as a graduate student, I studied stable isotopes, and we studied mixing curves. And I studied the stable isotopes of water, I'm looking at oxygen, hydrogen, and we could see the mixing curves in that. So if you're looking at a mixing curve, you don't know the end numbers. But yet, these are reported as factual numbers. In every case, they're always reported as, it's this old... Who can go back and say they're wrong? Because they're just putting these numbers out there. And the technique is very precise. But I just don't think it's accurate in, by any means. There's no way to verify them. And we have tried to verify them. As I mentioned, the numbers are generally, when we know the age of the lava or the rock, the numbers are generally way off. Yeah, so, and uh, a little bit, something else kind of related that might, people might bring up. So you're, I'm aware of these. There's many cases of rocks where, if you measure with different radioactive methods, uh, like uh, uranium lead versus uh, potassium argon or something, they don't give the same results, and that's what you're talking about. But there are some certain things where the different methods may agree. So, for example, one of the things where they do agree a lot, I think, is uh, when they do radioactive tests of uh, meteorites, but but in meteorites, you just have a different problem going on, I suspect, and I think it's probably more about the initial concentrations not being known. But uh, in 
um, there's a geologist at ICR, not at ICR, I'm sorry, uh, known by people at ICR, Andrew Snelling, who's done some research related to meteorites. And uh, he he seems to look at earth rocks a little bit differently than meteorites. And um, so sometimes scientists, I've observed, Tim, they, they tend to like to apply earth geology a lot to things in the solar system, to the moon or Mars or something. And I've often found that that doesn't really work too well. Uh, that I think uh, so there's a lot of things about Earth because Noah's flood happened on the Earth that makes Earth's geology more active and more and different than it is on other planets in our solar system. That's probably true. It's, I mean, I... Being a geologist, we study the Earth, and so I, I you know, I, sure. I have some understanding of the cosmos. But you're the, you'd be the expert on that more so than me. But but that is how they come with the age of the Earth. They use the moon rocks and meteorites because they haven't found any rocks on Earth that theoretically are old enough to go back to the age of the Earth. But obviously, the moon has to be around. As if the, if the Earth is around, they have to be around at the same time. So Tim, let's get into some some fascinating things that I have been reading in your book that I'm eager to talk to you about. Um, th- th- one of them is this concept with which I am somewhat familiar, but you're, the, the beginning part of the book introduces this idea, uh, well, in, in a general sense, um, that you, and you mentioned this earlier, the difference between how rocks form, because if you're, whether you're an old earth geologist or, or a secular old earther geologist or a young earth creationist geologist, Everybody agrees that the, the the rock layers seem to have been laid down. There's been a process over time of how these rocks came to be. Nobody disagrees with that. And in fact, from what I've read so far, that whether you're a uniformitarianist or a catastrophist or hold to some other theory that may be out there, um, that these rocks that we see, the layering that we see, um, has largely in part comes about through large aquatic inundation. Is that correct? That no matter how old you think this stuff is, that it was laid down by water, a lot of it. Is that uh, safe to say? Even, even uh, you know, the hard and fast evolutionary or uniformitarian geologists would agree with that. I think most of the, you know, the rock column, as we call it, the stratigraphic units, at least from the Cambrian up through the, the present, were deposited by water. Now, there's a few that argue these were deposited by land. This was deposited by a desert. You know, there's a few rock units within there that they, they try to argue are not due to water. But most of them, they do, probably 80% of the rocks, rock column, the stratigraphic rocks anyway, they agree were deposited by water. I believe it's most of them. Uh, but that's, that's a difference of opinion and some of the arguing some of the points between, like, say, the Coconino Sandstone and you know the secular scientists argue the Coconino sandstone, which is exposed in Grand Canyon, is the white layer near the top, big thick sand layer with a lot of cross bedded sands that indicates a lot of uh, movement, a lot of energy. Uh, we argue those are from wind blown. The secular side argues those are wind blown from de- desert arid dunes uh, blowing in. But yet you know the rocks below and the rocks above are deposited by marine rocks, and so in between you have this layer. Suddenly you have this sand dune that forms in the middle of this package of marine rocks. And, but we, we think those are marine sands as well, just huge sand waves that were coming in uh, as part of the flood. 
and the, and the argument is, if you look at the, and, and many times this is what's done in the psych of the world, is they teach you these things in the geology courses and sedimentology. You know, the big, big sand dunes, that means a desert. And so people just have that in their mind. They're trained that way. And so when you look at the rocks, and look at thin sections of the rock. Uh, my colleagues up in Calgary uh, studied the rocks, and John Whitmore studied the rocks and sent their samples up to those guys. And they found that there's dolomite ooids, uh, which are these round circular carbonate the only form in ooids only form is these little like sand grains that are rounded builds up almost like little miniature hailstones of carbonate that form in like areas of the Bahamas today in the oceans as they roll around in the waves. And so you find these in the middle of a sand dune, it doesn't make any sense. And they also find yeah, lots, that's of, interesting. lots of other minerals in there, but to me the dolomite ooids are the proof to me that those were deposited by water. You can't get dolomite ooids in those sand grains any other way. They can't come in later. You can't say these percolate in as this area was inundated by groundwater or something like that. Now you bring up you bring up the the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. which is like the uh, I don't know the Mount Everest of geological interpretation. Everybody's got an opinion on the Grand Canyon. That's a good point. Uh, the I've I've I've. Uh, have a book uh, written by old earth geologists and one of them the the, the thesis is that the Grand Canyon of course they're taking the old earth position they don't they say it's not evidence of a worldwide flood you do um, can you can you outline basically briefly why the canyon uh, you mentioned it just a little bit you alluded to it um, why why in your particular view why does the Grand Canyon exhibit uh, the the noetic flood that we see in Genesis well, I think if you look at the layers, and this is typical what you see all over, and I look at oil wells and cores all over the world, and you know, when I was working for the oil company, you see the layers are perfectly flat in most cases. I mean, they get folded, but the layers themselves are continuous, at least locally. And sometimes they go you know, almost continental, uh, but that's another point. But the, the, what we see in Grand Canyon, you can see that. You can get out of the rim and you can look at it, you can see these layers go across nearly flat, you know, for miles and miles in all directions, and for hundreds of square miles, actually, in all directions. And, in fact, even further than that, in many cases. Where are the canyons? I wrote an article about this recently. Where are the canyons that should have developed over the millions of years in between some of these layers? You should have huge canyons like Grand Canyon that have been filled with sediments. They should still see the, those filled-up canyons. The only canyons that form in the world today all form near the top of the rock column working their way down. They form very recently. And... So you look at the layers of Grand Canyon, you see pancake layers, pancake layer, pancake layer. Some of them are supposed to be 160 million years of time between those layers. Like between the Muav limestone, which is Cambrian, and the Mississippian limestones above the Red Wall, there's about 164 million years, according to the secular time scale. Where's the time? It's shown up. All you see is a flat line between one limestone to the next. And that's what we see throughout the rock record. We see, I mean, occasionally there's erosional surfaces, I believe in you know, erosion, but I don't think erosion necessarily takes thousands and thousands of years or even millions of years. But we pretty much see flat-lying pancake layers everywhere. And people mm. see this, visitors see this with no knowledge of geology, and they, you can see almost like bricks building up these layer upon layer upon layer. There should yeah, be a so lot of erosion between those layers. And the um, evidence. You, you have a, an excellent graphic that was just eye-opening to me on page 52 in your book. Um, you have a, a graphic of the Tapeats sandstone and its equivalent units across North America. Uh, you have it in yellow. And this basically, continentally, with the exception of uh, the corner of the Pacific Northwest and uh, something in Florida and Georgia, this, this Tapeats sandstone is continental in size. 
and um, it, it's it's what is that, Tim? I mean, what what this is something that you've been you're an expert in um, that you've been mapping the, the different kinds of uh, of geological formations that you see over the planet. Your your research is 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 global, literally. And uh, it's just fascinated to me that this that this tapete sandstone formation is nearly uh, North America is it near it goes into Canada goes all the way down to Mexico and goes up into uh, to, to the Arctic and what is the tapete sandstone and what is this how how does this tapete also uh, indicate to you a global flood? The tapete, as it's called. Oh, tapete. I'm sorry. A little, a little different pronunciation, but that's okay. <laughs> it's the Tapetes and its equivalent members. I mean, every state is pretty much a different name because the geologists in different names, different states named it. But when you piece it all together, like I've had the opportunity to do, you look at the oil wells, you know, state to state to state, look at all these columns from state to state to state and across Canada and Mexico and South America and Africa and Europe and all these places, you see there's at the bottom of the stratigraphic column, the Cambrian, that's what the Tapetes is. It's the first layer where it shows... A sudden flooding, and even the secondary geologists believe there was the soft transgression at that point. And it flooded across uh, most of North America. Yet the only place that isn't is up in Canada. And there's a little strip that comes down North America, and that's because I believe, it's another story, but I believe that was higher ground at the time that was being deposited. But you have this swirling around almost, you know, the Hudson Bay area of Canada, where you have all this even deposition up in northern Greenland. All that yellow is, is one continuous sandstone. It's called a blanket sand. And secular scientists are still baffled, and they occasionally write a paper about every five or ten years on trying to explain these blanket sands we see in the rock record. We see the same layer, and that layer may only be 50 foot thick in most cases, or 100 foot thick or 200 foot thick, but it's spread across almost you know the entire United States, parts of Canada, parts of Mexico, you know, swirls around up to Greenland. Uh, and you see this on other continents as well, the same sandstone layer at that same level, as you set to flood these, the earth was started to flood, and even the secularists believe that was the beginning of the soft transgression, which is pretty much a global sea level rise. And they uh, see that so, evidence, but as you explain so, that in the in the old earth style uniformitarianism, you have to explain you had slow rise in sea level, and it slowly worked its way in, but yet you don't see anything besides sand. There's, there's uh, never Tim, a gap. So I have a question about this, Tim. You were talking about in different states or different parts of the continent, uh, geologists have used different names for certain rock layers. And what you're doing is correlating it uh, more globally and continental in scale. So how do you decide that uh, a layer that has a one name in one part of the continent is really the same layer as... Uh, something that has a different name somewhere else. Well, you can actually get close enough columns or oil wells and things that actually can correlate from point to point to point and work your way across. And so you can start in one state and start putting in the basically the oil well data that drills down deep enough to hit that layer. You can kind of put that data in, and then you can correlate and, and compare them from place to place. And so you can see that that's the same rock layer. And, and geologists know this. They have, we have charts in our work for the oil company. You have charts, say, in the western United States showing the names of all the rock units in each basin. You know, as you go from state to state or even within the basins, within Wyoming, for example, the Bighorn Basin to the Potter River Basin, some of the names are the same, but some of them, many of them change. And so you've got to kind of always keep track of what you're talking about when you're in a certain area. 
And so geologists have recognized this for a long time. And just you know, in the last eight years, I've had the pleasure of starting to look at these things on, on not just a regional scale, but on a continental scale, and then a multiple continental scale. And that's the beauty of the research I'm doing is it's showing the same pattern. So you've been uh... – what you've done is is correlating a lot of data that's out there now. So the oil companies have uh, compiled lots and lots of data about the rock layers all over the world, and you're tying that all together in a way that no one has really done before, it seems like. And, and, and there's a couple of secular geologists or even older uh, geologists uh, who have argued with me about that. There's a, one particular fellow. He says, oh, Exxon does this all the time. I'm like, no, not really. I mean, I talk to oil companies, and they're really interested when I go to conferences and I present one of my continents and show the data. They're like, well, that's really cool. Because when I work for Chevron, you get this little area, you work it, trying to find prospects. You don't get to look at the whole continental scale. There may be some companies out there that have proprietary data where they're kind of keeping track, and that, and that may be true. But none of this is released to the public. And so nobody really gets the chance to see that, whether they're keeping this or not. So... To say it's the only one, but it's the only one I, that I know of that's being publicly released as I do continent to continent to continent. And I do present these at, at secular geology conferences. You know, we don't mention the flood, but we show the data. We show the rocks, and people are always really interested, whether it's a, you know, an academic conference or an oil and gas conference. People are always interested to see the big picture of things. Cause they- and if I uh, if I can uh, uh, read from page fifty five, Tim, just along what you're saying here to to give our listeners an idea of the kind of data that you're working with, you say that uh, our database consisted of selected Kasuna, which is a, 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 a an acronym for the correlation of strati- stratigraphic units of North America. Stratigraphic is that? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Stratigraphic columns across the United States, stratigraphic data from the Geological Atlas of Western Canada, sedimentary basin, numerous well logs, oil wells and gas wells, hundreds of other available online sources. Using these data, we constructed 710 stratigraphic columns across North America, 429 across Africa, and 504 across Central and South America from the the pre please uh, pronounce that one for me, please, please. Pleistocene. Pleistocene. It's below the Ice Age, essentially. Yeah, below the Ice Age. Meter by meter down to the local basement. You input detailed lithological data, mega sequence boundaries, and latitude and longitude coordinates into Rockworks 17. This was impressive. A commercial software program for geologic data available from Rockware in Golden, Colorado. And you, you, so, so this data, you're not just, uh, digging in your backyard you've gone all over the all over the planet to do this we and we find it all i mean it's oil companies are proud to brag about their discoveries a few years after they made the discovery and they have the land all held up and they have the leases and then they will often do a powerpoint and so i will and they'll post those powerpoints after conferences sometimes online so i can pick those up you know and download those and get their columns that they you know what they found in that oil well but we started with that kasuna data uh, the Kasuna data is, is a, was put together by the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. Uh, it involved a lot of state geologists and oil and gas geologists and USGS geologists where they put together columns. So I had a ready-made data set in a lot of ways across North across the United States. And so that's what I started with. And then I went from there. When I went to Canada, I used some of the Canadian databases, as you mentioned. But also since then, it's been mostly oil wells. And measured sections up against, you know, rock units and things like that, published academic studies, 
where they actually measure the rocks, you know, meter by meter. Uh, but a lot of it's been more and more reliant on oil well discoveries, particularly offshore in the deep water areas of every continent. And uh, as you put that data in, you really start seeing the big picture of things. And, and to me, the big picture points to the flood because we see the same pattern pretty much on every continent at pretty much the same time, the same level in the rock record. And so that, to me, it's, it's an amazing you know, panorama or display of what the flood did. It was a global effect. Everything I see is pretty much global. Yeah, there was uh, another fascinating, and so we're, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I want to to touch on all these interesting things that your book brought up, Um, things that I find absolutely fascinating. So in addition to the Tapetes formation, which is, uh, goes all the way from the the northern Arctic down to to Mexico, there was another uh, uh, formation that I found fascinating that extends from the Dakotas through Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, a little into Kansas, all over Colorado, into Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and just touches the rim of Texas a little bit. It's called the Morrison Formation, and it seems to butt up right against the, uh, well, it comes close to, to, to it just looks like a, a puddle of mud in the picture that you have. Uh, what is the Morrison Formation, and why does it cover such an extensive area in, in North America here? The, the Morrison is an is upper Jurassic layer, is, if you want to use the, the, you know, the terms. I use those terms, I just don't had the millions of years onto them, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a very distinctive unit, and it's it's got a very distinctive color to it. And, and you, know, you can see there's almost like purples and pinks, almost it's really really pretty rock unit. So it was very distinctive, and people were finding dinosaurs in Colorado in that unit, in several places in the in the uh, late 19th century. They were finding dinosaurs in Wyoming in that same unit, and so they kept the name from near the town of Morrison, Colorado. Most rock units are named after the, where they first discover that unit or name that unit, describe it. Mm-hmm. So they took the Morrison, Colorado name and it spread across the entire country, New Mexico, all the way up to uh, Montana and places you can find the, the Morrison. And a little interesting side note here. My uh, Recently I went up to Devil's Tower. My, my boss at ICR, Dr. Randy Galuza, he has some land up a mile or so south of Devil's Tower, and he was showing me the view from his land, and I'm looking down going, that's the Morrison down there. Let me go down and look and see if there's any dinosaurs in it. And 99% <laughs> of the time, there aren't any. But sure enough, I went down there within a minute, I, there was dinosaur bones. So he's got he's sitting in kind of a bone bed in the Morrison. So the Morrison is famous for its dinosaurs, but, you know, they are hit or miss. Is that, uh, is that the formation that they pull T-Rexes from? No, that would be above that. So T-Rexes are a little higher in the, in the stratigraphic record. They're in the upper Cretaceous. Many times it's either the Lance Formation in Wyoming, and again, they, the names are different in different states, and it's the Hell Creek in Montana. So most of the T-Rexes come from the Hell Creek in eastern Montana. Some of them found in South Dakota, uh, but around the Black Hills kind of area. But that's okay. above the Morrison, a little bit above stratigraphically above the Morrison. Now that brings me to a big question that has to do with Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin You know, in the eight, mid-1800s. They're lining out this stratigraphy. Um, trying to make a geological column that, as you said earlier in the broadcast, tries to get rid of Moses. And so, as you say, there, there's nomenclature for each of these these layers that exist today. And what you generally find are certain kind of fossils at this layer, certain kind of fossils at the next layer. And as you just said, T-Rexes are above the Morrison. And so there does seem to be a kind of order uh, in which we find fossils. So if you are a paleontologist, uh, that you can go into to finding fossils because you know this formation exists and you'll find these fossils. 
What is the young Earth creationist uh, perspective on the Lyell Darwin schematic and and how we find why do we find fossils layered like this, Tim? Uh, the secularist will say it's over time, um, but what what's your perspective on how you find fossils in each of these different layers? Well, well, it goes back to kind of like eighteen fifteen that range when William Smith, I think his name was, made the first geologic maps across England, and he was you know doing canals for the moving coal and things like that. He was seeing the same fossils in the same sort of order as he went from one side of England to the other. And so he started putting together that whole idea of biostratigraphy that the same fossils are found in the same layers, and therefore you can identify the layer by the fossils that they're found in and that sort of thing. And so a lot of people argue that circular reasoning, but it really does work. You know, you can most of the times, if you don't go too far, and that's how I can correlate these rocks from the one continent to another, and during the past, as young Earth creationists, even we believe the continents were together and they moved rapidly apart during the flood. And that's but that's another whole topic for discussion, probably. Uh, but the the layers themselves, so you can actually correlate many of the same rock layers, like the same Tapitz equivalent Cambrian sandstone, is found on other continents, but it's called different names, just like from state to state. Uh, but you can uh, you can actually work that out where you can see the same approximate rock layers. And now in some cases you don't have it. There is erosion between these so-called mega sequences that I've studied and uh, that originally were called sequences by Larry Sloss when he proposed this new way of looking at stratigraphy, these big packages of sediment that came in, almost like a series of tsunami waves that came in and then they backed off a little bit. As they backed off each time, of course, sometimes they eroded some of the previous top sediment and then the next layers would come in on top of that and on top of that and and that's how I believe during the flood you built up these, these layers, but you saw they were very continuous, like the Morrison goes across most of the American West because it was spread across the American West even before the mountains came up much later. And so you have the same rock layers, same colors, you know, same minerals in them, across, spread across you know, multiple states. And an example like the Tapetes across almost the entire continent. Uh, and that's something we see uh, you know, globally, the same sorts of rock layers deposited, you know, over vast areas. And so you can actually come up with a column. I have a chapter in a book called, you know, Validating the Geologic Column. There's some creationists that don't believe in the geologic column. They're, you know, they're like, oh, the geologic column doesn't work. It's evolutionary, blah, 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 blah. But no, it does. I mean, you can correlate and find the same rocks. I point out you can find the same salt layers. No fossils in them at all, and you can correlate, and they fall right in exactly where the you know, in the same layer from state to state to state, as you go across like Michigan to New York, you can see the same silurian and salt layers. And they're always in the right same spot where they just where the column put them. Uh, so there's a validity to the column that, that, that a lot of but there's a lot of young earth creationists that don't subscribe to that. But most of us that know geology we recognize that this has been something that's been pretty well worked out. Uh Tim, I have some questions about fossils. So one of the questions that comes up is about when the flood began, and mm-hmm. there's been different things written about what's called Precambrian, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, it's uh, you'll you'll the evolutionists have often written about the Cambrian explosion, for example, where they you see a lot all kinds of different uh, fossils of various land animals and and marine animals all at the same level in the rock and uh they they view it as the beginning of many different forms of life but i've always i've always looked at it as more of a record of burial and and how the organisms died well 
So the question comes up of, uh, about Precambrian rock. Uh, was that in the flood or was that, did the flood happen before the Precambrian? Well, that's an interesting point. And as you keep reading my book, you're going to find out that I don't know in every case. Uh, in most cases, the Tapete sandstone, that sandstone that covers most of North America, that's pretty much accepted as the first flood deposit. That is the Cambrian explosion in most cases, but it's not always. There's places like the belt sequence, uh, the uh, belt uh, in Montana, and the Grand Canyon Supergroup. Uh, some of those rocks below the Tapetes, there's sediments below in many cases, and I'm keeping track of those in my book as well, and you'll get to that chapter eventually, uh, globally. And I haven't quite figured out exactly where the flood begins in every case. It's, it's, I kind of know more, I think, where I think the flood ends better than I know where it begins. But in most cases, it's pretty obvious. You get the Tapetes equivalent type sandstone on Precambrian crystalline rock. That's what you see 80% of the time. But, so, there, but there are places where there's sediments on sediments where I'm not exactly 100% certain where the flood began because there was the fountains bursting and you had some cracking up along the edges of the continents like the western North America and that was a little further east than it is today. And so you have a lot of sediments that might have been part of the 1,600 years between the creation and the flood. You might have had a lot of river deposits. We know there are rivers in the pre-flood world. Uh, so exactly where that boundary is in every case is not immediately clear, in my opinion. But some cases well, it is. Yeah, I can see that. Well, what about the end of the flood, then? You, well, I, 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 after doing all this research, I had to change my mind. Uh, I used to agree with these other creation geologists that are pretty prominent out there, uh, that it was at the end of the Cretaceous, the KPG, or what used to be called the KT boundary. But I totally disagree with that now. It's, uh, all the data that I'm finding supports a much higher flood boundary. And John Baumgartner has argued about this for years, saying there's too much sea level still being created for the flood to be over through much of the Cenozoic up until about the Pliocene. So he puts it around the bottom of the Pliocene. I think it's near the top of the Pliocene, right before the Ice Age. So, and the reason uh, I say that is, is and you'll get it to, a little bit in the book, is there's limestone, a marine deposit. <clears throat> Nobody argues with that. Limestone and marine salts deposit all the way across Syria, North Africa, Iraq. Right. All that area, plus Turkey, plus in, in, into Europe now, which isn't in the book. It's all marine sedimentation all the way through most of the Cenozoic. So above that KPG boundary, we still see massive amounts of marine deposition globally. And so I've had to change my mind and follow the data. And to me, the data is quite clear that the flood boundary is much higher than uh, the people have thought. And some of the geologists are still pushing this lower flood boundary. But uh, you know, then you have to argue that where do all these mammals come from we find in the Cenozoic? I believe those were animals that were buried, you know, stripped off the highest ground. And so I believe there's more of an ecological zonation to the explain the fossils in the, in the stratigraphic record than maybe some people have proposed. I know that's an old idea. It's come back. That's basically the best way I can explain what I'm seeing in the rock record and then all the rocks, but the fossils in those rocks, is there was a progressive flood. It was a pro progressive flood driven by plate rapidly forming seafloor and plate tectonics, the catastrophic so, uh, plate tectonics idea. Right, so I, I track, I'm tracking with you. I just wanted to add a little explanation about limestone. Okay. So li limestone uh, is calcium carbonate, and it, it forms from depositing out of water. Mm -hmm. But it's not like 
something like uh, a sandstone or a mud that turns to rock. It's more of a chemical precipitate. So right. it's more about the conditions in the water, uh, like the pH might change and that might make it uh, precipitate out or maybe some of it evaporates and that causes some to precipitate out. And uh, when, when uh, things like shells of, of, of marine organisms are dissolved in the water and then the conditions change, it can make it precipitate out. So the, the limestone is also an indication of, of a, a, the area being covered with water. And then uh, so um, limestone can can go back and forth and we can enter layers that change from limestone to some other sedimentary rock, right? Right. And, uh, right. You can then, have rapid changes, but you know, limestone, without a doubt, has to be deposited by water. Nobody, nobody disagrees with that. It has to, you still but, have to be covered in water to, to get it to Right. Fire. So, so when you get close to that end of the flood, mm-hmm. there's there's changes in the kind of fossils that you see, right? Do you see more? Uh, oh yeah, there's, change, well, there's, there's, there's changes throughout the rock record. I believe it's because that's you know, you're, even the earliest, like the Tapete sandstone, has distinctive fossils in it versus the rocks above it. And because you're, I think you're constantly bringing in bigger waves, bigger different parts of the ocean. You know, some of the stuff, of course, all the details need to be worked out. I'm trying to get a global database of what's there. I'm trying to look at what are the rocks that are still there today, and what are they telling us, and then others are going right. to come back like. Like Wayne Spencer is going to have to come back and, and study the rocks of just the Cambrian, maybe in, in North America or something like that. A geologist is going to have to come in and work on, okay, let's look at this area in more detail, this area in more detail. And I'm trying to look at, you know, give us a good handle of what is there today globally in a pretty pretty detailed sense from kind of. So, Tim, the, the question that I have. Uh, is I mean you bring this up in the book and I think it's fascinating and I'd love you to to, to to go into this a little bit is that we have obviously we have fossils all over the world um, and it's really hard to describe how we have such an abundance of fossils if you're an old earth uniformitarianist because fossils as I understand it need to be buried very deep and very quickly in order to have the kind of preservation that we see in so many fossils, even plants, uh, that, that we have to have a quick and deep burial. And this seems to be very problematic if you think that stuff is getting covered over slowly over millions of years. Can you describe the how, how we get a fossil? What is necessary for a fossil to, to, to come about? And, and the kinds of fossils that we find. Well, you've, you've kind of hit it on the... In the- in a nutshell, there it has to, they have to be buried fast and deep, and those conditions don't really exist in the world today. Uh, so the you know, arguments of you know fossilization going on. Even Mary Schweitzer said that she was here in Dallas giving a talk a few years ago about some of the original protein she's finding dinosaurs and how it's more common than she ever thought it was. And there's a lot of unpublished stuff on that as well. And she talked about fossils have to be buried fast and deep because you got to bury them deep enough to preserve some of the things from you know bacterial decay, uh, whether it's just a, any type of fossil. There's lots of different types of fossils. You get your marine seashells that normally get recrystallized. You get carbonization, which is kind of a little carbon residue that's very common in plants and things like that, or graptolites, these little marine critters. Uh, you know, there's, uh, let's see, you got petrification or permineralization where you're filling in some of the open spaces with minerals. 
and possibly preserving some of the original bone, which is what we're seeing more and more of in dinosaurs, the original preservation of many of these blood vessels and proteins like collagen and things like that and osteocytes. But, you know, even a lot of those bones are petrified to some extent, just even though there's some original still there. Uh, so there's various types of fossils. There's, there's imprints, there's molds, there's casts, different things where you get imprints of uh, shapes of things that dissolved away. You might just see the internal mold or internal cast. Uh, plenty of types of fossils, but they all have to form by being buried fast. You know, most of these animals were alive when they were buried. We see clams that are still closed up. You know, clams should spring open if they were, weren't buried alive. And, and brachiopod shells, you know, we see them closed up, but they, you know, they, they work differently. They stayed closed. But there's just millions, billions and billions and billions of fossils all over the world. All, mm. all the same types at the same approximate levels all over the world. And so uh, it does show there was something common happening buried in these environments, unique environments at about the same time all over from continent to continent to continent. And to me, that's what makes the global geologic column so powerful is it's global. It really yes, is global. Right. You need so, a global, and, you know, something global had to produce that. It didn't, couldn't just happen for millions of years over here. Millions. Again, they throw the millions of years around like they're real. Because yeah. they, that's just a number that's like I talked about earlier. That's just, you know, why don't they start saying hundreds of thousands of years? You know, they, they just jump right to millions where nobody can fathom that particular number. So the irony is, Tim, the, the, the rhetorical irony is that deep time kind of explains away the necessity of, of, of deep and rapid burial. Right. That with enough time, this is like, I've always said this very colloquially and somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that, uh, that, that secular science really does have a god. He's Kronos. Hmm. <laughs> the, you know, yeah. the god of old mythology, Saturn, the god of time. Yeah. And, and literally, literally the difference between a, a naturalist view of the world and a, and a creationist view of the world seems to boil down to how you interpret Matthew's verse, with God all things are possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so with God all things are possible, but with secular science and naturalism, with time. It seems that all things are possible, but as you say, this 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 rapid, deep burial is 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 all over the world. I mean, there's trilobites in Canada. There's 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 T Rexes all over the place. There's this. There's that. There's. I love you point out in the book. This just fascinates me. It brings to mind a a kind of a sci-fi horror movie. Uh, there are sharks and T Rexes mixed together in the Dakotas. Like, how would sharks get into the Dakotas? <laughs> well, you know, the secularists, they do have a story on that, but it's not a very good story. Hey, <laughs> I have something I can add on that, uh, Dan. It turns out that when I lived in Kansas, um, me and uh, some friends went out to western Kansas to uh, do some fossil hunting. And there's some interesting fossils that have been found in Kansas. And remember, Kansas is right in the middle of the continental United States, right? And it's uh, east of Colorado a little way. So um, so we were looking in, in um, along a creek bed where there had recently been rain and it had exposed some fossils. And Tim, we, we were looking at a layer. The later, later I went to a geologist, uh, to a geological survey office, and I talked to him about, I got a map and I found out what rock layer we were looking at. And he said it was the Dakota sandstone. So, uh, so we found 
a rock that had uh, uh, unfossilized wood in the rock, embedded in the rock, and in the same rock there was a shark tooth. And, uh, yeah, and there were lots of shark teeth in that in that area where we were looking. Uh, they were black and very small, uh, like they were probably young sharks, and they had probably been replaced with or coated with something like, a, I don't know, iron or something. I don't know what it was. But anyway, we found the uh, a rock that had, that had, you could see various shells that were fossils in that rock, and you could see a very clearly unfossilized wood and that didn't it was very crumbly and it didn't last very well but we t- kept the rock and then uh there was uh, a shark tooth on the other side of it that's pretty amazing because the dakota by most people you know secular stories that's supposed to be deposited by rivers and streams slowly over you know thousands and tens of thousands of millions I, of years and so you shouldn't have any shark teeth in that layer i know above that the cretaceous interior seaway as they call it comes in and and floods across on top of it and brings in a lot of shales, marine shales on top of it. But the Dakota itself is supposed to be a you know river, dry you know dry land basically you know not below sea level type of deposit all across the American West. But you know, I disagree. I think it's it's a marine deposit as well. They all are marine deposits and they're all mixing. Uh, the most one of the most recent articles I wrote. I talk about it in the book quite a bit, but there's a more recent article that I put on our icr.org website. It's about the first. Uh, Irish dinosaurs that they were discovered, and they were discovered back you know, 15, 20 years ago by a guy who passed away. Nobody believed him because they said Ireland doesn't have the right kind of rocks, doesn't have the right level of rocks, and dinosaurs are only found in Jurassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous uh, rocks. And they don't have those, and the ones they do have are marine rocks. So those are like limestones. So they uh, yeah, said, why even look? But yet they found them. In those right. marine rocks. They find dinosaurs yeah. in marine rocks all over Europe. In marine rocks, like chalk. Right. Tim, I, one thing I should add, because I didn't think of it before. One other interesting thing we found that day when we were fossil hunting was that we found something that I didn't know what it was. And when I showed it to geologists later, they said it was a manta ray tooth. This is in western Kansas. I, I guarantee you that farmers don't have manta rays in their farm ponds. <laughs> Green River Formation in Wyoming, too. There's herring in there. I mean, the most common fish almost is herring, and, and they're all marine today. They find coelacanths, right. you know, these, the living fossil, the famous coelacanths, in Morocco with Spinosaurus. And I asked the geologist who came in Dallas again to talk on that, and I said, how do you explain the coelacanths? Those are marine fish that live 500 feet deep today or deeper. They don't leave even near the surface. And he said, oh, they must have been freshwater fish back then because they're found with dinosaurs. So they changed the story to fit you know, their preconceived ideas. They, they accuse us of that because we believe the Bible. Uh, but the secular you know, scientists or the atheistic scientists, they do the same thing. They just Because they have the majority of the people on their side because they've been indoctrinating them through their courses for years and years and years now, uh, it's hard to kind of get people to, to see that, oh, yeah, that maybe is maybe that just is an assumption. Maybe I, right. I shouldn't hold to that like it's a fact. And so it's very it's difficult. Geology in particular, I think, is the toughest. Uh, when I was with the oil company, I used to talk to some of my colleagues, and you know, they knew I was good at finding oil and, and could do good geology. And, and I, you know, I did really well in school and everything, uh, grade-wise. Uh, not that I'm that smart necessarily, but I, I worked hard. And, 
and sometimes they got the right professor, I think, as well. But uh, you know, I used to talk to them about it, and they just, you know, for them it's almost like they have to think of the other side of their brain because they never heard stuff that's contrary to the story <laughs> that they've been taught. And so I've almost had to retrain my brain. And, and even even now, you know, Andrew Snelling, you know, AIG, we, we communicate quite a bit, and he and I both sometimes we struggle with writing things. We're, you know, we're still writing in the same way we were taught. And you're like, wait a minute, that's, that's not the way we should word that. And so occasionally we have to catch ourselves because it's it's that mindset that we've been trained as trained geologists through all the years of school, you kind of get indoctrinated to some way. And it's, it's right. hard, hard to break geologists out of it. But uh, So there's a lot of old earth geologists out there that are Christians, but they just they, that's all they know is deep time because that's all they've ever taught. They, they can't think. Tim, how would you uh, respond to uh, an old earth creationist? I've read this recently in preparation for our interview, uh, that one of the things that an older creationist has brought up is this idea of of rocks that existed before the flood um specifically the example he gave was the tig- tigris and euphrates uh coming together if he argues that the flood was global um why do we have sedimentary layering below the tigris euphrates and why do we still have the tigris euphrates um, if there was a global flood, I think he was arguing for a local flood, and uh, so I, I have not having any geological knowledge. How would you identify the difference between rocks that were created during, you know, deposition over time, whether it's short or or long, versus rocks that were innate to the planet? Obviously, there were rocks that God created uh, before the flood. How, as a, as a young Earth geologist, how would you make the distinction between, you know? rocks created by a flood and rocks that were created before the flood? Well, for the, for the most part, most rocks, I think, created before the flood in those 1,600 years between the creation and the flood. Uh, there were rivers. There were the, you know, the Tigris, the Euphrates, but they were different rivers. I don't believe those are the same rivers at all. Those rivers okay. today are, on, are deposited on tops of thousands of feet of flood rocks. Uh, that whole area has got you know, tens of thousands of feet. of. That's why they find oil in the Middle East in those areas. Those are all deposited marine algae had to be deposited rapidly, and that's what ultimately made the oil, and that's another whole story in itself. Uh, but, uh, to, to, you know, I don't believe, I mean, people try to argue, though, why would, I think it's just kind of like New England. You know, people came over and called cities York. They called cities the same names of where they used to live. And so gotcha. post-flood, they called these rivers Tigris Euphrates. That's what they knew. Uh, they might have reminded them of them. But I don't believe it's anywhere near, possibly, where Eden was, where the pre-flood people were. Uh, in my book, you'll see later there's a chapter on the pre-flood world where I can kind of glean out a little bit of where the highs and lows were. And the reason there's no yellow sandstone in Canada is because I believe that was higher ground uh, in the pre-flood world. Everything thins towards that. All these sequences all thin towards that, which you know geologists would tell you that means that was a, a hill. And so I believe there you can identify uh, the major highs and lows on all the continents and the lowland areas, the upland areas maybe some shallow sea areas, that sort of thing. Those basic environments you can identify in, in this research that I'm doing. That's what I've been trying to put together is a, a global pre-flood world map, putting the continents back together uh, as best we can, and then uh, based on correlations of rocks. And, and you know, a lot of it goes back to classical plate tectonics, but we believe things happen very, very quickly, uh, following what John Baumgartner showed, uh, runaway subduction, uh, rapid plate movement during the flood year. And today everything's moving slow. And, you know, so, again, what we see today is not what happened in the past. 
Right. Today's processes can't be projected into the past, and that's that's the problem with uniformitarianism is they try to take everything that's see happening today, slow erosion, slow deposition, and project it in the past. We're looking at something that's only happened once in, in history, this major global flood that completely destroyed the face of the earth. So I don't think you'll ever be able to find exactly where the Garden of Eden was uh, or where these original rivers were. Maybe we can get some idea, because there are rocks below the Tabits, which I believe are probably pre-flood. But again, I talked about earlier, it's hard to tell exactly. Is this the earliest flood before the Tabits started coming in? Because I think you had to have some plate movement beginning to create tsunamis to push these sands across you know, much of North America, like the Tabit sandstone. But there were things going on before that with the fountains of the deep bursting and cracking of the continents and some deposition and lavas and things coming out. And some of those events, I think, were part of the earliest week or two of the flood and before maybe even started depositing sediments onto the continents. It's, now, it's a little tricky to tell exactly, but generally the, all the pre-flood rocks, you, know, you don't really have fossils of very many animals. You might have stromatolites, these algal mounds that kind of built up and that sort of thing that got buried. Uh, but you might have had a lot of rivers drained off the edge of these continents because the Bible does talk about the, those rivers. I believe they're completely different than what we have today. They just renamed these rivers, uh, you know, where they got off the ark and said, oh, this reminds us of the Euphrates, so they call it the... Okay, all right. Now, Tim, I have um, another objection question from my secular skeptic uh, old earth friends. Um, and that it's, it's more of a biblical hermeneutical question, and uh, hopefully you can address it. I think you'll be able to. Um, the objection I hear is that young earth creationists will say the earth is 6,000 years old and then use the genealogies in Matthew and Luke to derive that age because they say the Bible doesn't say how old specifically everything is. We shouldn't use the genealogies to to make that conclusion. How do you? How would you respond to that? Well, I think you can get a pretty good handle of it. I mean, if you were to read the Bible, the way it's written, and you didn't know anything about you know deep times concepts and all that sort of thing, you would say that this Earth, according to the Bible, is only thousands of years old, probably six, seven thousand years old, that range. There, are, you know, people argue that you might be missing a, a name or two in there or people's names are in there, but yet the Bible gives you some very specific dates, particularly in Genesis, where it says this person begat this person, this person was this old when that happened, this person was this old when that happened. And so even if there's names missing in between, you know, a couple of generations, you still have a, a lock from the date of that person to the per, the date when this person was born. All you really had was that nine months, you know, of the pregnancy that you can kind of slap around. Uh, but there are, you know, places where they have to make a little bit of a jump. You know, like exactly when did Abraham live? You know, most people say around 2000 B.C., but again, there's a little bit of a subjectivity, I guess, in some of that. Uh, I get a little bit out of my league, but if you if you have the genealogies, they're pretty well laid out. You can't get much more than 6,000 years uh, without throwing in some time that isn't really, you know, discussed in the Bible at all. I think, you know, you just got to think things happen fast. In a major global catastrophic event, there isn't a reason why you can't do all this, you know, much of what we see in the rock record in the year of the flood. And the flood wasn't 40 right. days. It was, it was, you know, you, before it ended, before the receding phase actually came to a conclusion, you actually have, you know, it was almost, a, it was over a year before they got out the ark, but I think around 314 days before the 
earth was declared dry based on what you know Noah saw. Yeah. But you know, one of the problems I have that no one's really been able to address is something I bring up in my book called the Whopper Sand, which is discovered in the 2000s in the Gulf of Mexico, out in seven and ten thousand feet of water, and they keep finding more and more discoveries in it. They've found over 15 billion barrels of oil in it, and it's out in an area where we weren't even supposed to look when I went for Chevron because there's no sand out there. And there's really not a good model to get 1,000 foot, 1,500 foot, no, almost 2,000 foot of sand. Pure sand. It's a flat bottom and a flat top. It, isn't, it was wow. just dumped out there like you took a huge truckload of sand and just dumped it and spread it across most of the deep gulf. And that's the kind wow. of stuff we're finding in the last 20 years that has never really been addressed. Uh, to, to explain how do you get sand that's 200 miles offshore and more out there that's pure sand. And when they drilled it, they were expecting it mostly clay with a little bit of sand. Because none of their uniformitarian models can get it out there. And the biggest, most popular idea behind it is that sea level must have dropped 6,000 feet. This has actually been proposed, 6,000 feet in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. But you can't do that because groundwater would fill it up. That's right. You, and, so, and you'd have to drop the whole world down. There's no evidence of any of that. It's just there's no salt, there's so no evaporation. They, uh, they just, Tim? The uh, the Whopper sand sounds like a whopper of a problem for the evolutionists. Rained off North America, the high energy uh, recession. Uh, that was the initial pulse, just like water pouring off your parking lot when it's pouring rain. It's going off really fast and it carried all the sand up there and eventually it became slower and slower. So now you get mostly clay and you get now just a little river, the Mississippi. But this was sheet flow coming off the whole continent that dumped it out there. I believe there's other whopper sands off the other continents. They just haven't been drilled yet. They haven't gone out that far yet. Mm. Well, Tim, I want to be able to ask one more question. This was given to me by uh, um, a friend of mine who is uh, he is suspicious of AIG and ICR. Uh, his, his, That's funny. <laughs> his his criticism to me this was in private he's like well just ask your geology friend he thinks that uh he's so kind of offended by this whole thing that i have another friend who puts uh acts and facts magazines out on the table at church and my my uh my christian friend my other friend will come along and and hide them so, <laughs> so this is this is a kind of uh of back and forth that we have it's very respectful and civil but um my friend has seriously. He said that uh, that uh, that young Earth creationists are deliberately twisting the science to fit their young Earth paradigm. And I, I I lay it out there. I mean, I'm and in my book I show you three continents worth of data. You know, and it's it's out there. Uh, and I challenge the old Earth geologists. How do you explain this? How do you explain these patterns we're seeing? How do you explain this global nature of everything that I'm looking at from continent to continent to continent? And I even had a, an atheist reviewed my book. He, he was too cheap to buy it, so I sent him a copy for free. He's a well-known, respected, I won't mention his name, but he's a well-respected and published professor. He's in a really high-powered research institution on the East Coast, and he's written geology textbooks, and he reviewed the whole book, and he really didn't find a whole lot wrong. A couple little things where this one figure, this picture of, you know, really isn't showing the, in Iceland, you know, it isn't really showing exactly what we wanted to say, so we've got to change the wording on some of those things in the next printing. Uh, but he just basically didn't like that I called him secular geologist, because there's no such thing as a secular geologist. And, and at the end when I talked about how, you know, Jesus was the judge, you know, even though he wasn't called Jesus at the time, uh, he was still part of the triune God. You know, it all points to Jesus, but he's offered us a way of salvation. 
you know, through his blood, through his shed blood, just like the ark was salvation at the time of the flood. And and he really got offended by that because being an atheist, yeah. Yeah. oh, well, yes, Jesus was a charlatan and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah but he didn't really find anything, you know, really that he could stick his finger and say, well, this is wrong. He just disagreed with me on a lot of stuff. And I think that's an excellent point. Uh, we've got to wrap up here. I think that's an excellent point to wrap up on. That that the science that you're doing, Tim, the the way in which you're looking at the rocks, the way in which you are trying to to take in as much data as out there. You're using data from oil companies. You're d- using data from all over the world. Um, you you have very thorough and, and lucid explanations in your book, even for somebody like me who's who's a lay person who loves to to to, to read about science. That it all points to Jesus. That's I mean, correct. this is uh, what what Luke twenty four twenty seven says that. When Jesus is going along the road to Emmaus, even the disciples, a couple of the disciples don't recognize Jesus, mm-hmm. but Jesus is giving them what an exegetical walk to Emmaus that must have been, that he goes from beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, mm-hmm. he expounded unto them uh, the scriptures concerning himself. Wow. And uh, Wayne and I did a podcast a couple summers ago about uh, how do we know the flood happened, and that was our conclusion. Well, if you're not a geologist, it's okay because Jesus affirms the flood. That's correct. And, 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 and that's really, you know, for, for the Granny Smith who's never going to pick up a geology book, that's the absolute hope that we have that, that Jesus' words are true and trustworthy. He's the way, the truth, and the life, uh, that the flood occurred. And, and it, it is kind of what it, it, the secular pushback, I think, Tim, reminds me of what's going to happen in the end of time when Christ does return, that uh, people try to decry the judgment that the flood is all about. Right. If we can get rid of evidence of the flood, we can basically get rid of evidence for God's judgment of sin. But in the end of time, when Jesus returns, what are people going to do? They're going to cry out to the rocks to save them from the wrath That's of correct. God, and well, they're already kind of doing that. Right. I think. And well, and then Jesus, you know, God predicted this through the writings of Peter in Second Peter three. He talked about how people are—they're not going to believe. They're going to scoff at the idea of, of a global flood. I mean, it's, it's right in there in Second Peter three. Absolutely right, and, and that's but, what we but see. Jesus, Jesus used the uh, he referred to the flood mm-hmm. as an example of what was going to what it was going to be like when he returned. Right. So God has a track record of judging evil in the mm-hmm. world, and if He didn't, then why should we worship Him? So God is is holy, and He's going to do something about evil in the world again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we need to get right with God now. That's correct. So, Tim, amen to that. Amen, Wayne. Amen. Thank you, both gentlemen. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Tim, for a wonderful uh, way to start the weekend uh, for us here, recording Saturday morning here. And it was so wonderful to talk to you, and it's been a privilege. I always love talking to authors of books and getting their insights and things. Carved in Stone, the Geological Evidence of the Worldwide Flood from the Institute from. Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Timothy Clary is with us this morning. Uh, Thank you so much, Tim. This is a great book. Available on the ICR website, um, and you can just read this chapter by chapter. Lots of graphics and pictures. And if you don't know anything about geology and you want a good, thorough, investigative look at geology from a young Earth perspective, this is the book. I don't think there's anything quite like this out there right now, Tim. I don't believe there is. I mean, it's 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 and it's it really is data driven. And, that, and that's the beauty of, you know, that's the way science should be. And that's why I've had to change mm-hmm. my mind on some of these topics and things, even as a, a young earth creationist. And, and, you know, it's, 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 it's all about, you know, the way science should be done. And that's what gives me great joy in getting that out there is this is the way science should be done. 
if you Amen. follow the data, you know, that leads to the to the conclusion, the most logical conclusion. And the most logical conclusion, in my opinion, is there was this global flood. God's Amen. word really is true. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for your time, Tim. And uh, we will hopefully remain in touch. And if uh, to our listeners, if you've never been to, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, go check out the Institute for Creation Research Museum. Wayne and I had a, a wonderful tour of it uh, not too long ago. Um, very, very well done. Uh, a, a solid gospel presentation at the end of the tour. That was very nice. Some really fascinating animatronics, some really high-tech stuff uh, that's there. They have a planetarium, and uh, they have an Ice Age room that's just kept really cold. <laughs> it's, it's called the Discovery Center. It's the Discovery Center at ICR. It's the Discovery Center, yeah. yeah. If you go to our it's, website, icr.org, and you go to Discovery Center. You can buy tickets ahead of time and show right. Yeah, so, so do check that out, it's and uh, we place. will link we will link resources uh, to find out more information about ICR and about uh, uh, Tim's work and his book in the description notes of this podcast. And so, until next time, Wayne, we will see you back here again on Good Heavens. Thanks for listening to another episode of Good Heavens, a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information about Good Heavens or other topics and podcasts related to apologetics, world religions, and cults, visit watchman.org today. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.